This week's episode of the Art of the Cut podcast is brought to you by LaCie. As one of the leading media storage companies in the entertainment industry, LaCie has consistently brought innovative ideas to the market. By now, everyone knows the iconic orange rubber bumper that wraps the LaCie rugged drive. But did you know that LaCie has a rugged SSD? With the ability to transfer 4K raw video with speeds up to 4 megabytes per second, hardware encryption, and a truly rugged design that will take most anything you can throw at it, including dropping it in water or running it over with a two-ton car, the rugged SSD is a dream piece of equipment for any content creator who is on the move. For listeners of the Art of the Cut podcast, LaCie is offering 10% off the rugged SSD or any other LaCie drive when you shop on filmtools.com with coupon code LACIEPOD. That's L-A-C-I-E-P-O-D at checkout to receive 10% off your LaCie purchase on filmtools.com. So next time you need a new drive, head over to filmtools.com and use code LACIEPOD at checkout to get 10% off your LaCie purchase. Hello, and welcome to the Art of the Cut podcast. I'm Steve Hallfish. I'm a feature film editor and discuss the art and craft of film editing with my colleagues in film and TV. In this episode, I'm talking with Billy Fox, ACE. Billy was nominated for an Emmy for his work on Pee-wee's Playhouse and Band of Brothers. He won an Emmy for Law and Order. His filmography includes Only the Brave, Straight Out of Compton, both of which were subjects of previous Art of the Cut interviews, Footloose, and Hustle and Flow, among many others. Today, we discuss his work on My Name is Dolomite. So I just looked at a couple of, uh, of scenes from the movie. It looks, uh, it looks really fun. That's really what it is. It's really, really fun. It's, uh, it's, it's a great character study of a guy who is um, relentlessly and ruthlessly uh, has faith in his ability and no one is going to tell him he can't achieve what he wants to achieve. And that's the <laughs> overarching drive in the entire movie. And um, that's what you feel. You know, I mean, that's what Eddie communicated with his devotion and his admiration with um, Rudy Ray Moore. Uh, you said it was really important to you to lay the foundations in that first reel. Is that something that had to happen after you got through dailies or after you got through the production? Because otherwise you really don't know what the first reel is necessarily right assuming you're shooting out of order well you're definitely shooting out of order to be honest with you it's the way it just happened and it also is just the way it happened that we uh did the reel break that uh, the first reel you you basically lay down the foundation of all of your key characters and the um core theme for the movie which as i said the the relentless drive of rudy ray moore and and placing him in his situation and the beginning process of his taking the first step to the next level. In that first reel, you get to know Rudy. All of the characters of the movie are just pretty much laid out. It's something I've always admired in a Pixar movie, that most of them at least do this very, very well. They lay the foundation of the entire movie in that first 20 minutes. And you are invested. You know, you're committed to the characters. You get a clear idea of what's going on and where it's going, or kind of where it's going. You hopefully don't know too much. But it's the uh, foundation that pulls you f through the rest of the movie. And did you feel like you needed to copy the original style of the, the original movie? 
Well, that's an interesting one because it's something I struggled with a little bit almost before we started shooting because in watching the first couple, three movies, particularly the first one, you know, I was looking at the style and rhythms that that movie had and uh, was wondering, well, how are, are we going to be doing something similar to that? And I didn't know if, should I change my editing style when we go into a, um, a remake of a given scene? And as it turned out, it really became a non-issue because of the fact that we are constantly um, within a scene of the original movie, we're not just in the scene. We're um, behind the camera, you know, Wesley Snipes, the director, is making a comment. So it's, it's very rare that we're in, quote unquote, a scene of the movie, the original movie, for any duration of time that would give me any opportunity to necessarily duplicate what Dolomite really looked like in the, the rhythms of that original movie. That makes sense. I, I, I watched a scene that I was able to get from the studio of, uh, and I'm sure you'll, you'll remember this, uh, Wesley Snipes is acting as the director. He's sitting you know, in front of a camera filming an FBI bust as they yeah. surround Dolomite and, and they open up the trunk and he's got drugs in the trunk and then there's a fight. And you, know, you clearly have to leave it where you see how bad the fight is. Otherwise, you would, you know, your goal as an editor would be, how can I cut this so that it looks like a real fight? But you kind of had to show that it wasn't a good fight. Exactly. Well, it's interesting because that is the one scene that you're in a scene long enough that it allows you to kind of, not completely copy, but what you're saying, uh, showing that it's a kind of a bad movie. And what I would do is I did alter my timing a little bit because there were like two or three moments where I would, I would open up edits and the pauses would be just a little too long. And it, was, it brought just a, a, a slight sense of uh, uneasiness, like very slow and kind of some bad acting. And, and of course, the way that, you know, Eddie would throw the guys into the, the guy into the trunk and the punches and the stuff. And then, of course, punctuated by, you know, Wesley's reaction to those activities was just perfect, just great. <laughs> There was plenty of stuff to deal with between Wesley and, and the varying ca characters that were watching. It looked very funny. Just uh, And, and you're, uh, I sensed that in the editing, and, and obviously it's also, you kind of want to cut to them. I think you cut to Eddie a little early so that you saw him hesitate before he says his line kind of thing, right? To, to emphasize what a bad, you know, the, exactly. the acting. The acting, yeah. that yeah. is really... Uh, that is really interesting. And then you've got to kind of come out of that, right? You've got to come out of that style so that you're back to editing a, a good movie. Back to somewhat normal, yeah. <laughs> it, 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 it was another interesting factor in the editing of this because um, I don't do much comedy. And uh, in fact, I do virtually no comedy. And um, so it was kind of interesting for me to, you know, how is this going to alter how I cut? And what I kind of discovered in getting into the story and getting into the rhythms of, you know, the Dolomite character and this story is that it's, as I viewed it, it's not a comedy. It's a drama, or one could say a lowercase uh, dramedy, about funny people and funny things happen. So the bottom line is I really didn't have to shift how I'm editing or how I necessarily function. It's pretty much the same. 
a little bit, but not night and day. Right now with Craig, we're doing Eddie's next movie. We're doing Coming to America. And that's much more of a pure comedy. And that's definitely a different style. And so that's taking me to a different rhythm and a different way of looking at things. Now you've uh, worked with some pretty strong personalities in front of the camera before. Does it change things anyway? How is it working with Eddie Murphy? And was there anything different about that kind of process or character? Well, it's interesting because I've always admired Eddie and in, admired all of his movies and, and just love his character and his humor and this and that. But I didn't really know, you know, what is he like to work with, or at least on my side, because I don't really have to deal with him at all. But I was thoroughly impressed. He is an amazing professional who totally knows his lines and his timing and makes an editor's life very wonderful because his performances are very distinct and to jump from performance to performance is, is relatively easy. Even if he makes variations on a performance, he's, he's very impressive. And I found that, in fact, he's so impressive that he raises the bar for all of the other actors because they've got to come up to him and... Uh, you know, he's Eddie Murphy because he is Eddie Murphy, and he justifies it. The last time we talked, I believe, just to kind of jump around a little bit, I hate to do this to you, yeah. but uh, you were on a film that was cutting in premiere. Tell me a little bit about the, the technical aspect of this movie and NLE you were on and why that decision was made. The one behind this, Only the Brave, was my first one on uh, Adobe Premiere, and uh, we were the first show to be on their, shared, their new shared project at the time. I just felt very comfortable with Premiere. Did Only the Brave with it, now I've done Dolomite, and I've moved over to uh, Coming to America on Premiere. It's just, I like the interface, I like the visual interface, the actual editing interface, the sound is very strong. For me at least, it's a very comfortable NLE. I enjoy it. I enjoy Avid, uh, I enjoy Final Cut. They're all different, they all have their different flavors and advantages and disadvantages. But each project I look at and look at what's needed for that project. And, um, you know, this one seemed to fit very nicely for another uh, premiere project. And it's been, uh, you know, we're halfway through shooting, a little beyond half. It's been great. We're having a great time. How, uh, how are you dealing with media? Were you cutting? I think you finished at 4K, right? Tell me a little bit about how you were cutting or what, what media proxies or whatever you were cutting with, and then how the film was finished. Those fall into my first assistant, Jamie Clerp's department more than me. Um, yeah. Um, yes, we do finish in 4K. On Dolomite, because it was a Netflix film, their requirements is not only do we do a 4K, but we also have all of our visual effects are done in 4K. And, and also it was an HDR. Paramount uh, will be doing a 4K mastering but our visual effects from my understanding are going to be 2k and it will be an hdr in terms of our dailies editorially i believe jamie is using prores lt i'm not positive on that and we're editing in 1080 and we've had great luck with 1080 particularly certainly it looks great in the room because we have a big monitor and everything looks fantastic um, but when we go to preview pushing out to a big monster screen, 
looks like a million bucks. That's nice. And what about audio? Are, how are you monitoring? Are you LCR or 5.1 or just stereo? Um, I'm doing LCR. On um, Only the Brave, I was doing it um, in full surround. But the surround, because the room is not that giant, the rears, even though it filled the room, it was kind of more of a hassle than it was. It wasn't an, an editorial hassle. It just wasn't needed. So we decided on this show to just be um, LCR. And um, it really makes a difference to have that nice center track for your dialogue. And then from there, we'll, you know, for a preview, say, we will definitely go through a temp dub and um, make it a, a surround. You mentioned a little bit about editing for Netflix and preparing you know, what you have to do for deliverables. How, how is it working with Netflix? There's such a big, there's such a big uh, behemoth in the industry now. Right. They definitely are. As I was telling Jamie when we were about to start, I said, you know, there's a lot of firsts for you, for you and me. You know, certainly your first dealing with Craig Brewer, the director, and um, my first dealing with, with Eddie. But it'll be an interesting experience to see what it's like to work with Netflix. Neither of us had done one before. It was a great experience. We had a ball. The studios, the traditional studios, because they're so established and because they have done product for so many, virtually a century, um, they have their way of operating. And sometimes the studios uh, justifiably have their way of doing things. Whereas Netflix seems a little more open if a filmmaker wants to do a certain thing a certain way, it becomes the choice of, of the filmmaker. Uh, the process itself is virtually identical in terms of what I would do, say, for Paramount or what I would do or how we would process for Netflix. But it's a little more stringent, if that's the right word, at Netflix. They're um, a little more open. But the other studios, each studio is a little different. It depends. depends on where you're doing it. This is a director that you've worked with before on Footloose, correct? Yes. This is our, well, uh, Dolomite is our fourth movie and then Coming to America is our fifth. Wow. What are, uh, t talk to me about this longer-term collaboration with this director and how, kind of how did that start? And, uh, and is it nice to kind of be back in the saddle with this guy that you've uh, done multiple projects with? Well, it is definitely great to be back in the saddle. Craig and I have worked together for over 15 years. Basically, I received a phone call from John Singleton, and he was producing a film called Hustle and Flow. And uh, I had been recommended to John by a dear friend by the name of Paul Hall. So John decided to call me and uh, said, are you interested in doing this film? And I went, well, yeah, I think it would be great. And they sent me a script. They had already started shooting. I flew to Memphis and met Craig. You know, we've been working together ever since. Craig is a, a, a really interesting guy. He's, you know, he's very sweet, very even-tempered, humblingly bright. Uh, his writing is beyond spot-on. He's very clear with his vision. I mean, he knows what he wants and he knows how he wants to do it. I think, fortunately, because we don't really talk a lot, particularly during shooting, I just started editing, and I don't even know if he liked what I did or not because he really wouldn't make much comment. When we're shooting, I don't even send him scenes. Um, I send him scenes occasionally. Sometimes he looks at some of them more times than not. I think that Craig has a supreme confidence in what he wants, and he knows what he shot. 
he doesn't necessarily need to look at a cut to know that, that it's all there. Very rarely do I ever call him and say, you know, I'm missing something that I need you to pick up a shot. It just this side of never happens. It did happen once in Dolomite where I did call him and I said, I need a particular shot. And he goes, nah, I'm not sure you need it. It's okay. And then when we were in editing, it did come up and he goes, oh, I guess I should have shot that, shouldn't I? And I went, well, we'll be okay. No one will know the difference. But that's like the only time it's ever happened. And in um, coming to America, at least so far, you know, we're shooting a lot of film. And uh, the coverage is there. The coverage is very solid, astoundingly solid. But he's great to work with. And then when we move into the edit room and then we're, you know, joined at the hip... He's a delight to work with. You know, we, we work, we have great conversation. We, um, we don't really argue much about stuff. We, we sometimes will have differences of opinion, but it's not that big of a deal. And we kind of move around it. Sometimes he listens to me and more times than not, if Craig wants it, then that's of course what we'll do. It's a very, very comfortable relationship, just like you said. Tell me about that collaboration. You said you're joined at the hip. Is he really sitting in with you so much of the day or is he kind of dropping in taking a look at stuff giving you some notes giving you some time to work how does that relationship work well on the other three movies with um hustle and flow black snake moan and footloose we edited actually right here in, on the desk that i'm sitting at right now at my house you know when we were in director's cut and beyond he would come in every morning about 10 ish and we would start working and we would work till i don't know nine o'clock, 10 o'clock at night. And yes, he would be with me pretty much the whole day uh, with very few exceptions. On Dolomite, it was a little teeny different for the first time because he was one of the producers and directors for the show Empire. So he would come over, we would spend a number of hours together and then he would either peel over to Empire for half the day or be gone for the entire day. But that worked out fine because I would have notes. I certainly had things I needed to do. We just kept the machine running. So it, it became a, a new animal. I think that on um, coming to America, I'm sure he will be more back because there isn't an empire this year uh, for him. I'm sure he'll be in the edit room back to the, the old way and be there pretty much the entire time. What was the schedule like? What, um, when did you guys go into production on Dolomite? And when did you get, when did you get into uh, your director's cut? And then I'm assuming you wrapped up fairly recently. No, we didn't actually. We, let's see if I can remember all this. We, yeah, we started a year ago, June, shot through the summer. We went into director's cut. I want to say we've almost finished the director's cut before, before Christmas, or no, it was just slightly after. Then we went into previews. We had two previews. We got 90s, 93 and a 97 or something. And then we locked it up and then we mixed. And we, we actually finished Dolomite. The, la the end of the mix was end of March. So the film was finished, I don't know, six months ago, five months ago. And this one, this next one is a similar schedule. Um, we'll finish about six months or so before the release. Yeah, so that gave you some time to jump over to the next production? Yes, exactly. And, and actually to enjoy a little bit of summer. 
and and spend some time uh, with my wife and the family and the kids and yeah. That was good. Yeah, you mentioned to me you got uh, you got to go off to uh, a lovely uh, trip in Italy. Yes, we did. We had a great couple week holiday in uh, northern Italy. It was a great break. It was really nice. I'm ready to go back. Talk to me a little bit about Temp and what that was like, and then uh, how Temp turned into the real tracks that you got, and did that affect the editing when Temp turned into Score? The Temp was an interesting one because of the, I don't know, this may not be the right way of putting it, the oddball nature of the movie. It was difficult uh, for me to find the right temp score. I normally, on everything I ever work on, part of what I do months before we even start is I'm looking for the nice temp score and a score that that fits rhythmically and emotionally more than anything uh, to what I feel the movie is. I don't do a lot of discussing it with the director. I just start using it. There have been some amazing challenges back on Straight Outta Compton. Universal was nice enough to give me a music editor, Jason Rutter, the first day of shooting. And we spent literally months trying to find the sound or the the flavor of what that score should be. But on Dolomite, it was really a struggle and I couldn't find anything because it's not, you know, it's not... Um, I mean, on the emotional scenes, that's relatively easy, I guess. But um, on a lot of the other stuff, it was hard. And I was talking to Craig one Saturday afternoon about it. And he goes, well, have you tried Hustle and Flow? And I went, oh, that's a damn good idea. So uh, Scott Bomar, the composer, sent me all the tracks. And uh, I started dropping them in. And it was like butter. It just dropped in. It was the right feel. It had an, a heaviness when needed, and um, it just worked great. And as it turned out, we ended up using Scott to do the score for Dolomite. So it was, we used some other things, some other cues. Um, we had a lot of source, but Hustle and Flow was the uh, foundation for a lot of the uh, music in Dolomite. That's interesting. Did you have to temp much with like, bad TV or film music of the era for some of the scenes of, that you were kind of recreating, or did that not really happen? Um, no, I don't think we did a lot of that. I'm trying to think. Um, maybe we did somewhere, but no, it doesn't stick out like we did that a lot. But for me, when we moved into the final, I went back to Memphis with Craig, and Craig lives in Memphis, and uh, Scott Bomar lives in Memphis. And we went back for a week, and it was just an amazingly, incredibly wonderful experience. It was wonderful to be back in Memphis. It was great to be working with Scott, and it was great to be working with the musicians that Scott Bomar put together, which were basically a lot of the key characters from Isaac um, Hayes' original band. You know, Willie Hall, who was the famous uh, drummer for Shaft. He was the drummer in in the Blues Brothers, right? Exactly. And just to be there was just amazing. You know, I set up an edit room in um, a sound recording booth, so it was totally quiet. And uh, so we would be scoring scenes, and then sometimes we would see something we need to shift or something, and so I would do an alternate cut, and Jamie would grab that file from 
my desktop, make the change, and then send the reels right back to Scott, and it worked fantastically. But the whole experience of being in Memphis and doing those scores at Scott's studio, and then we moved over to Royal Studios, which is a very famous studio in Memphis, and, and mixed there for a couple of three days. It was just the highlight. It was the little cherry on the top of, of being exposed to these amazing, humblingly great musicians and to, um, you know, see how it all came together. It was wonderful. That is so cool. Did you have any, uh, any favorite scenes, any scenes that were difficult, something that stands out in your mind that provided a challenge? Yeah, Maybe. you know, there are two. One was particularly challenging and one was just particularly fun. The one that was really fun to work with and challenging was the first time that Rudy sat down in his living room and turned on the tape recorder after he had recorded The Street People and he um, started to carve out what the Dolomite character is. And there was a fair amount of footage there and just to put together kind of a montage scene of him playing back and then playing back a bite and then his taking that bite, Eddie taking that bite and starting to mold, very slowly mold the character of Dolomite and discovering who the Dolomite character is. There was a cut earlier that was a little bit longer and uh, I did like that a little more, but there's an energy that we now have that moves through that scene. But that was a fun, fun scene to do and um, I really liked that scene. The other one is when we uh, first meet Lady Reed or actually the second, we meet her in the previous scene, and then um, she's sitting having a drink in a bar and Rudy walks in and they have a great conversation. And that scene for me is just magic. Uh, it's magic because it's so, it feels so real. And um, the characters, the two of them, you really feel like they're getting to know each other. You know, she's not wanting to show her cards and not showing who she is. And then slowly during the the arc of the scene, she starts to expose herself and um, becomes a little more vulnerable. And also the, um, the photography, the DP of the movie was Eric Stielberg. That scene just is wonderful. It just has these wonderful imperfections of a, you know, kind of a, a, a light flash and stuff that's not perfect. And it makes the scene just more human and real. And I love that scene. I can't, I always enjoy watching that scene. I like messy. I like, within reason, I like, you know, a good moving camera. I like uh, motion. I don't like it when it's too excessive, but I like, yeah, a little light flare that comes in a corner. I don't necessarily like it if, you know, someone's head moves in and moves out, that kind of thing. Sometimes I'll crop that out or sometimes I'll even do a visual effect to paint it out. But if it's not distracting to the emotion, if it keeps everything moving forward, sometimes something can happen on a side, can even be a light flash, and it will help you pull yourself across to the next cut. It'll motivate the cut to some extent. I've got a couple of other scenes from the studio. Could you comment on this scene, which is uh, Red Fox? Oh, in the record store? An interesting scene because, forgetting the character, the character that comes in the door, the homeless person. Anyway, there was some concern that he may not be be good or working out well. So there was a concern, we need to cut this scene, we need to cut this scene fast. And I went, okay, great. And so I cut it and I called him, I said, I think this guy's great. I sent the scene back to Craig and uh, they loved him. Everything, all whatever issue was there for whatever reason, and you never really know, at least I don't, 
what it was, but uh, it, it all went away. The scene was a little bit of a challenge because you were talking at one point about the improv quality of some of these actors. And um, he was one of them, and Mike Epps was another one who would improvise a bit. And particularly with that character walking around the record store, but oftentimes saying lines in different places, it was a little bit of a challenge to make it all work. It worked out just fine. And it had great energy. And in fact, you know, his button at the end uh, and a man named Dolomite would just couldn't be more perfect. I mean, that's like the launching of the movie right there. That's where it all kind of kicked in. And so you were talking about, about improvisation. Was Eddie, you, you talk, and you also mentioned how prepared Eddie was. Was he not doing a lot of improvisation? Um, Eddie does alts. He will do a scene with an alternate ending or an, an alternate line. Does he improvise? He doesn't improvise a lot, a lot. He's pretty true to the script. But along those lines, we're working on a scene for uh, Coming to America, the, the barbershop scene. And um, Craig had them in the barbershop before the scripted page just improvise a little 30, 40, well, it's actually about a minute, a minute open where they're just talking, where they're just going back and forth and back and forth. And it's not scripted. And I just, and I, and I cut like three different versions of it. So I'm not sure which one Craig will like, and uh, but it's great. It's really great. No, he doesn't improvise, improvise the way some other actors Well, might. not necessarily improvisation. Is there anything to talk about with that specific scene that you can think of? Well, that you... that scene where they're kind of, where Eddie's kind of laying out what he wants him to do and giving him, you know, some key points of where he wants the story to go for Dolomite. Um, Two had a certain challenging quality, certainly when someone's crossing the room and all kinds of, somewhat of improvising, but they're kind of playing off of each other. That scene was fun. That scene was just great, great fun. And I also had a great time because of the photography. The, the camera motions were, were so augmenting certain points in a certain way that it helped me a lot. And, and it, it should have been a hard scene to cut and it actually came together pretty, pretty easily. You mentioned a, t a story uh, about the Rudy Ray Moore Memorial Theater. Yeah, well, there's a little backstory to that. Um, sure. Craig loves to show the movie to people when we get it into a pretty good shape. And, and so oftentimes in previous movies, you know, I've got pages of notes I need to get through. And all of a sudden Craig goes, so-and-so is coming by. Can we watch the movie? Okay, sure. And then, of course, I'm shut down for two and a half hours. And so as they were finishing uh, production, I went to Netflix and I said, is there any way that we can set up a little theater? And they went, sure. So we put in a premiere with a big screen and two, you know, two nice speakers, or surround speakers, actually. And it was absolutely wonderful. So Craig comes in uh, after photography and he goes, oh, this is great. This will, we'll use this all the time. And we did. We used it constantly. But when he walked in, he looks at it and he goes, no, no, this has got to be a Rudy Ray Moore theater. So with this, Kalila, who was our post PA, they set off on decorating this 
in what Rudy called in the movie, even though the line has been extracted, when he's talking about setting up his new studio, he says, I'm going to be moving in here and I want to get a red couch with red carpeting and, um, you know, a red bed with red bedspread. And I want it to be red on red on red on red. Well, unfortunately, we lost the red on red on red line. But Craig said, I want to make this theater red on red on red on red. So Kalila made, the walls were all of these sparkly, long, red uh, tinsel kind of things that were falling from the sky. And then we had red things all over the place. You walk in this room, it wasn't a very big room. You know, you could only put about five people in the room. And uh, it was fantastic. But the bottom line is, oh my God, I'm going to have to go to Paramount and ask for a similar thing because it's going to come up. And uh, can we get a room and just be the theater? Because boy, was it you. Sometimes you would have three screenings in a day. And so it was extremely helpful. Basically, you, you mentioned that sometimes these screenings would take away from the time that you had to edit. <gasps> um, did you have it so that the screening room was playing off of a different system or a shared? Oh, it was a shared. It was, it was like you could do editing in there if you wanted to. It was a full premiere system. I mean, it was a, not a full system. It was a full computer with keyboard. So if I had made a change in my room, Instantly, I could just walk down and look at it in the, in the red on red on red Rudy Ray Moore Memorial Theater. <laughs> did you ever use that theater for for yourself? Did it did it change things for you to watch? I did. I would walk down the theater. theater when I I find it fascinating that I can um, I'll cut a scene or let's say I have a longer I have a I have a reel I'll work on it and work on it and I'm sitting by myself and it's fine. If one person is sitting in the room, the f it feels entirely different. And then the other thing is, if I walk down and look at it in the Rudy Ray Moore Memorial Theater, it just feels different. It, it's not that I actually go back and change anything per se, but I, it's a different read. It's very helpful. When we were on Only the Brave, we were mixing at Skywalker. And what they would do is you would mix on one of their dub stages. And when you'd finish a reel, you would just walk down the hall and you would go into the Stag Theater, this giant 300-seat theater, and play back the reel. And I'd go, this is great. I want to do this every time. And then you'd go back into the dub stage and make whatever changes you want to make. One of the questions I had about, uh, and we kind of addressed this, but did this big, bigger-than-life kind of character that Eddie's playing, did that affect... Or how did it affect your approach to the editing or the style of editing? Not really. I mean, really? his it didn't it didn't affect it per se. Other than um, it was captivating. It, it wasn't how big he was. What I looked at it, it was that he just had a. No one can ever say no to him, and if he does say no, he'll find a way to get it done. And I think that's the force that you know pulls you through the movie. The odds were against him. You know, the whole thing is about, no, you can't do that. And he found a way to do it. And he says that in a given scene when, you know, he's walking down the street. He's, he finds a way to do it. We always discuss as editors uh, that idea that, you know, we're storytellers and that you're always storytelling in editing. Can you think of like a specific instance or some little moment, maybe even a detail where you think, I am telling the story through editing? 
it's so hard because obviously you're doing it all the time and that's your sole job, but... Um, well, the first one that kind of pops into my mind is, and particularly in Dolomite, you know, some of the montages. You know, the montages are taking you through a journey of, for example, when he's selling the record, the first time he's selling the record. That's a journey that starts with he's selling it out of his trunk and it's a journey that all of a sudden he becomes a little more successful and all of a sudden he's starting to generate some sales. And then all of a sudden he's back on the stage and because people know of what he, and there's a, there's a whole story and, and I love doing those. And uh, there's the arc and story of that editing is within a dramatic scene, be it the Lady Reed scene with Eddie at the bar, but to tell the story through a montage is just fun and uh, keep that drive going and, and, you know, that it kind of crescendos up to a point and, and then moves and pushes you on to the next chapter of the movie. You talked about how the fact that this movie kind of does this great setup in the first 20 minutes, the first reel of the film, and that Pixar does something similar. Did you have to do a fair amount of massaging to get the points in that you wanted in 20 minutes, maybe, you know, maybe the assembly was 40 at that point. Right. It was definitely longer um, at one point. Um, you know, when I, when I first, you know, started, I don't have reels. I just have ginormous 50 minute reels. And then at some point, I don't concern myself with breaking it into reels. I always get used to reel changes. And then when you rebalance a reel, or rebalance your reels, I'm always screwed up for a long period of time. And in fact, sometimes I never recover from what that original reel change is. So I like to delay. So in the case of that, uh, what you were speaking of, that one just is the how it worked out. And that's how this movie has been. It's been a little bit of a blessed movie. You know, there have there were very, very few crises. There were very, very few political issues. The movie came together very I don't want to say easily, but it, it just found its place. You, you felt that it was, it, it was a pretty good film, even from the very beginning or somewhat from the beginning. And the way that first reel happened, no, it wasn't any effort. It's just the way it happened. And it just so happened that it fit within a given, you know, 20-minute reel, and it worked out perfect. For people who haven't edited maybe a feature or maybe they're aspiring to, I really would love to talk a little bit about this idea of balancing and rebalancing reels because it might be a concept people aren't familiar with but I have the exact same feeling that you do is that when I set up reels for the first time and then I find I have to rebalance them there's something about it that throws yeah. me off and you, you you kind of lose track where you are in the movie so could you explain what balancing and rebalancing means right. balancing basically means that it comes from the old film days when you had to build reels that lived within, was it 2,200 feet, which was about 20 minutes. And you're allowed to go a little above that. I think it's 22 minutes or whatever, but for all intents and purposes, 20 minute reels. Ultimately, when you're done, you can't go over 20 minutes. And particularly in the film world, it was a particular challenge because when you had film reel changes, you, in theory, you couldn't do a reel change in the middle of a scene you couldn't do a real change that had music across that real change. You ideally couldn't do a real change that had dialogue, you know, pre-lapped on either side. It just didn't work. So there were all kinds of restrictions, and boy, were they a pain in the butt. 
Um, and then the studio would yell at you if you were at seven reels and they go, no, you've got to bring it down to six reels. And you go, well, tell me where I'm supposed to do this. And it's always a big hassle. Well, now that we're in a digital world, that need has kind of gone away, even though you still need to push out to film in some instances. When we did um, Only the Brave, it came down from the studio that we don't even need to make it in reels. You can make your reels any, any length you want. And I said, that's crazy. It's crazy because if you, if let's say it becomes the biggest film in the history of movies, you're going to want to push it out to film. And then what are you going to do? You have to go back into the editing world and rebalance the reels? That's not going to happen. So I still live in, in the world of balancing the reels as if it's going to go to film. Now, in the case of Dolomite, it did go out to film. We didn't make a lot of prints. I think we only made four prints, but um, we did push out to film and we did it at Photochem. And um, we looked, or Jamie looked at the reel and uh, they looked great. And then I went last Tuesday to Quentin Tarantino's theater on Beverly and they showed it on 35. And so it was great to see Dolomite in 35 and, uh, it looked great. looked like a million bucks. Uh, and the idea of rebalancing these things is uh, because if you, right, if you cut, well, in, like at the assembly stage, you've got a two-hour and 40-minute movie, and eventually you get it down to two hours. Obviously, you might have a reel that, you know, you thought at the beginning was 20 minutes, and now it's down to five or something. Right, and that's when you have to rebalance. And that's when, you know, again, I I live in the world of, 55 minute reels for as long as I can because it just is a little easier but it also becomes a little cumbersome you know pushing around an hour reel I mean, it's doable but it's just a pain so at a, what I try and do is delay the the reel the first balance into a reels uh, until kind of not quite the last minute but pretty close but then what happens is you balance the reels and everything's looking really good now, all of a sudden, the idea is, well, let's take this scene and move it over into what would be reel two. Oh, great. Okay, now I've got a short reel on reel one, and I have an over-the-top reel on reel two. So I have to take the beginning of reel two and put it on the end of reel one. Well, you can't do that because that's got a music cue that goes across. And so it's always this pain in the butt. But it's and lots of people. Have me I mean, you mentioned the main reason being that you're going out to film. I find that it's a vendor thing. Vendors just prefer to work in reels, and it's just a methodology for, you know, breaking things up into bite-sized chunks. Well, it also is, I think, beneficial for when you're mixing, so that if you're in reel one, they're still working on reel two. They're making changes on three. Now you're working on two. They're making those changes in reel one. You're, you're able to bounce back and forth and be working on other stuff while you're working on a reel that you're working on. If you were, in, in theory, one big reel or one big two and a half hour thing, two hour thing, that would be difficult. I'm not saying you couldn't do it. I'm just saying it would be harder. Billy, I, I really love talking to you. Uh, is there anything else that you want to uh, mention about this? Or, I mean, I, I think we've covered a huge amount of ground and I learned so much uh, from this discussion. Anything else? No, I just, you know, I wanted to give a shout out certainly to Craig 
And, you know, he's just the greatest. If anyone gets an opportunity to see him in an interview or go see him chat, he is captivating and fascinating to listen to. And he's just such a, you know, interesting person. And then the directors, you know, Larry and Scott, uh, wow. You know, it's it, it felt like it was a Craig Brewer movie, but, you know, they did it. And with working with Craig, I think they did a particularly great job. And Scott Bomar is the composer. The two producers, John Davis and John Fox, were just supportive and um, always there for us and, and really, really uh, solid, solid notes. Um, and then we had uh, Scott Hansen come on board uh, for a couple months because sometimes Craig likes to uh, take a scene and just, uh, like, for example, the movie-making scene at the end that's kind of crazy. I had sketched out parts of it, but he and, and uh, Scott uh, sat in a room and uh, kind of pounded that out for a couple weeks. And that was really helpful because it allowed me to keep keep pushing through. And then uh, Jamie, my uh, first assistant, just, he too kept the, the ship going through the water. And uh, I oftentimes throw him some very challenging technical requests and uh, he listens and he walks away and then he comes back and he goes, okay, you got it. What's the kind of technical request that you would throw him? Well, like when we did Only the Brave, there were like five things we did. We were using a new storage solution called Open Drive. The first time we'd ever used Premiere. I think it was the first time we did a 5.1 environment. There were like two other things that we did. And there were some other, oh, there was some monitoring. We had a 4K monitor, uh, 4K monitor, HDR monitor that we were dealing with. Oh, we were doing um, Next, uh, Next Lab from Photochem, which was fantastic. There was a lot of things that we had not dealt with before. And it got to a place where we were doing so many new things on this show, on that show, that there were like two or three other things I wanted to do. And I said, okay, enough. We're going to save those for the next show because we're doing, we're doing enough on this one. But, you know, Jamie is uh, very uh, talented at uh, looking at those challenges and finding the best way to um, make them realities. How much of that workflow did you pull over from Only the Brave to this movie, did you use that same storage solution? I remember talking about that on the you know, no, last we didn't use. We haven't used OpenDrive since, but we have called Coming to America Dolomite 2.0 because <laughs> we are really from the camera to where we're doing the DI to virtually everything is pretty much the same workflow. And that's probably very helpful for both of you guys to just not have to worry about. Yeah, it's, it's been the, very helpful. I mean, aspects. in that on Dolomite, there were a couple of weeks where, you know, we were still setting up some new things and getting it going. This one, we were pretty much going full speed from day one. It made a big difference. It was very helpful. Billy, I so much enjoyed talking to you. Thank you so much for uh, giving me some My time. My pleasure. Thanks so much. Thanks for listening to the Art of the Cut podcast. Also, check out ProVideoCoalition.com for more than 200 interviews with the world's top editors. Thanks again to my guest, Billy Fox, ACE. I'm Steve Hallfish. If this is a podcast that you got something out of, give us a like, leave a comment, and make sure to tell a filmmaking friend.